As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, Bacon and Ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba da ba ba ba. Welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kreider, and today is the day. Ladies and gentlemen, Draft Lottery Night will commence at 7 p.m. I'm going to be bringing you guys a Megapod in today's episode, kind of breaking down the ins and outs of how the Draft Lottery is going to work today. What we're going to see, not just from the Thunder in terms of odds, but some of the other teams as well where OKC could land with their two lottery choices and top eight contenders for OKC's own selection so we'll be breaking down prospects we'll be breaking down teams we'll be breaking down fits in today's episode so get your popcorn ready this is probably going to be a longer episode before a day like this I believe it calls for it, and it also calls for a very special offer from my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook, so you do not want to miss out on that. But guys, like I said, for months, Oklahoma City has just been fixated, really, on today, and it's not just been the Thunder, it's been multiple franchises, the Houston Rockets, the Magic, the Pistons, teams like the Pacers just fell off the grid to close this season, ended up losing 10 plus games in a row in order to situate themselves on this board to get ping pong balls and to potentially have a top four pick in this draft class. I'll go into prospects later on in today's episode, but I believe there are kind of some gaps here in terms of this top of the board. I guess you could rank them in tiers and you want to be in those higher tiers to get better prospects. The way you do that is by losing some games to end the season and strengthening your chances. In the case of the Thunder, they're going to walk into this one with the fourth best odds of their own pick and the 12th best odds from the Clippers pick. But before you get into the action, you got to go into the ins and outs of the draft lottery process. And they have retooled the lottery over the last few seasons about five years ago that's when they implemented uh, kind of the new slate here where you know the top teams have even cuts it's not the worst team in the league has a 25 percent chance you can thank Sam Hinkie for the adjustments they made here but it's kind of made it easier for teams that might be sixth in reverse standings or eighth in reverse standings to creep up and be able to select a top four prospect and the way that they do it is they're going to determine only the top four picks in the draft so they find the top four and from that point you just go in inverse order of record or I guess whoever has the top odds so let's say the Houston Rockets are not in the top four that means they're pick number five that's the worst they can do for the Orlando Magic The worst they can do is pick number six. If both Houston and Orlando miss out, that's where they'll fall. For the Pistons, their worst spot is seven, and that means Oklahoma City could potentially 
spiral to eighth place. It's unlikely, but there's always that small chance. So how they're going to do it is before it gets to the big screen, and you guys probably already know this, they really just do it in the back. And Sam Presti is going to be the representative to actually see the lottery balls being drawn. Nick Collison will be the representative for television purposes, but they're going to bring them into a separate room. NBA officials and representatives will be in there. Same goes for people from Ernst and Young. They've been in charge of the lottery for really years now, it seems like. And the way they do this is they have 14 lottery balls numbered 1 through 14, and they put them into their lottery machine. And what they'll do is they put all those numbers in the machine. They start it up and there's going to be a representative who's not facing the machine with like a stopwatch. And after 20 seconds, he'll tip off whoever is right in front of the machine to open up the hatch. One lottery ball will go to the top and that's going to give you the first number for your potential combination. And there's 1,000 potential combinations with these four balls ranging 1 through 14. So that's how you kind of get to the numbers. Like, let's say Houston, they have 140 combinations because of, you know, their draft odds. Same goes for Orlando, same goes for Detroit. So they'll pull out that first number, put that back into, you know, like a tube to, to reread them later. Then you go to the second ping pong ball, you wait 10 seconds, open the hatch, do the same for the third and the fourth. And after you go through those four ping pong balls, you go check up on the results and see which team has been awarded the number one pick. And you repeat the process for two, three, and four. If there's a repeat, you just redo until you get a new team there. And that's when you go into inverse standings. And that's when you'll see a team like Houston, if they don't go one through four, get placed at that five spot. There's no more jumping the board after selection number four and that's where you get to your final board of how that lottery is going to work they put those bad boys in envelopes and they get it ready for tv and that's the finished product but the one where you actually see the reveal is not shown until espn airs the envelopes being Uh, opened up and revealed you'll see the actual results in the ping pong balls probably a day later on the nba's youtube page they had one back in 2020 i'm sure they had the 2021 results as well Uh, but that's just how they go about the procedure and it's going to be at 7 p.m on espn tonight espn's going to have the boston heat game right afterwards Basically, it's a 30-minute segment. 20 of it is just talking about the prospects, potential fits, and then there's the 10 minutes of the actual lottery. It's funny because the ping-pong process takes about five minutes. The envelopes being opened takes about five minutes with the commercial break included. It's crazy how fast it goes by, but you know when your team is pinned in the lottery... Your heart is going to be racing. It's not going to feel like five minutes. It's going to feel like an eternity. And that's why this event is so great. Could be great for OKC. They're the only team in tonight's draft lottery holding two lottery picks. That puts them in a spot not just for one opportunity at the number one pick, but two. 
So I'll be talking about those two selections in one second here where those can range and what the actual odds will be in one second here. But first, I want to let you guys know about a very special offer going on with my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. The NBA playoff action is nonstop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the NBA playoffs? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more, and boom. You have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place the same game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Here's what you have to do for the offer. Go ahead and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's promo code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Going into the Thunder's case for tonight's lottery, though. I mentioned it before the ad. OKC has two lottery picks at their disposal. They could be used as trade chips or they could be used to select some prospects. You already have that core sort of assembled right now in SGA, Giddy, recent draft picks in Trey Mann, undrafted pickup in Lou Dort. Like you have some of the pieces to the puzzle, but a home run hit in tonight's lottery would be big time. And this isn't the first rodeo for OKC. They've been in the draft lottery four times in franchise history. Tonight will mark their fourth. First appearance was in their inaugural season. That's when they ended up getting James Harden. In 2015, they had that heartbreaker where KD was injured and AD hit like a game winner. He called bank and he called game on OKC's hopes. So Westbrook went to that one and they got campaign at 14. And Nazi Muhammad showed up last season. OKC had a chance at picks number one and five, five coming from the Houston Rockets. Houston got pick number two, OKC got six. They did well in drafting Josh Giddy there, but there was the opportunity for even more there. They're coming off a season of going 24 and 58, kind of the same storyline as last year, where a lot of those big time players either got injured or or got taken off the roster. You saw Al Horford get shut down early last season. SGA was dealing with a plantar fascia issue, so he got his plug pulled there. And you started to see more of the back of the rotation guys get minutes. Teo Maladon was your minute leader in the 2020-21 season. Poku was playing 30 minutes a game. Josh Hall was going on crazy tangents. And the story just goes on and on in that respect. This year, SGA got injured again. Lou Dort had a season-ending injury, and Josh Giddy was sidelined for a good chunk as well. 
That led to OKC just looking anywhere for production. Players like Vic Kredci went from not being able to play minutes to now you're playing 30 minutes a game. Xavier Simpson, Melvin Frazier Jr., Olivier Saar, just to name a few, they saw crazy upticks. And that last week where they waved Saar to pick up Frazier, they were basically running the Oklahoma City Blue to close out the season. You had Xavier, Yorgos, Jalen, Veet, and to round it all out, you kind of had to start picking at straws to get some of your minutes. But yeah, it was a wacky close. You know, from the outsider's perspective, yet again, it sort of looked like a tanking game. I know last year, you saw the major, like, media outlets kind of bashing the Thunder for their crazy losing streak. This season, it seemed like just about everybody was doing it. OKC closed the year relatively well compared to some of these other guys. OKC very easily could have had a top three draft odd going into tonight. There were multiple chances where if they would have lost a game, they would have jumped to the third seed in lottery standings. The big one came against the Orlando Magic just about three weeks before the season concluded. They won that game. There was a game against Portland that they won, and it created a wall between three and four that they just could not conquer. Detroit, they were the final team to have a cut at the top odds. They had a one-game advantage over OKC for that grand prize, but they're still looking pretty, and they have that pick from the Clippers. That one came just completely gifted in a basket. OKC got five first-round picks from that Paul George trade back in 2019. You get SGA and Danilo Gallinari in there as well. This Clippers pick was supposed to be in the 20s, and all their picks should be in the 20s, but Paul George having a major injury and Kawhi not playing at all this year kept the door open. LA was the eighth seed going into the play-in tournament. It looked like they were going to be set up for a spot. They lost their first game, lost their second game, and they were booted out of the playoffs from the 16th pick in the draft to the 12th pick in the draft because on the eastern side of things... Charlotte and Cleveland both had better records. So, very lucky draw for OKC to have that pick at 12. Might be their best pick they'll have out of that trade. We'll have to see. I think it's unlikely that Clippers, the Clippers are going to be in the lottery in the next four years after this, though. Anyways, here's kind of the breakdown. You have Houston... Orlando and Detroit, they have a 14% chance at that number one pick, and they also share a 52.1% chance of landing in the top four. Then you get that break where Oklahoma City is at that fourth spot. They have a 12.5% chance of going number one, and for going top four, it's basically a coin flip. 48.1% chance they will creep up into that category. In terms of top three, it goes down just a little bit for Oklahoma City. It's going to take you from that 48.1% chance to a 36.6% chance. Still all right, 
does cut a little bit into that margin. The way it's going to work, and I mentioned it uh, during like the initial segment, is that OKC could climb into the top four with this pick. They could also land at five, six, seven, or eight. Eight is very unlikely. In that instance, everyone not projected to be in the top four lands in the top four. So that's teams like the Pacers, the Trailblazers, the Spurs, the Pelicans. If all four of them are in the top four, then OKC's at pick number eight, and that's about the worst you can do. But there's just a 2.2% chance of it. So it is nice to at least have that factor into it. That biggest cut is at the 12.5% chance of number one. That's what you want to have. It decreases pick by pick. 12.2% chance of the second selection, 11.9% chance of three, and an 11.5% chance of pick number four. At pick five, there's a 7.2% chance. And then you get into the hotbed of picks six and seven. This is where OKC fell last year. They went to number six. It was the highest likelihood. Same exact story today. Over a quarter of the time, OKC's at six. There's a 25.7% chance of this occurrence. And for pick number seven, there's a 16.7% chance. When you add that up, that's a 42.1% shot. So there's a better chance OKC is in the top four than landing in six or seven, but that's kind of where you seem to congregate if they're not able to get that perfect roll. Going on to their second pick though, they have an extra shot in the chamber and no other team is able to say that right now. And it's from that Clippers pick. The chances of this pick landing in the top four is 7.2%. So there is a shot. It's not going to pop up often, but it can occur. If it does, OKC's draft hall has hit an elite level. If it's picks number four and six or picks four and seven, even four and eight, that's a big win because not only could you take a very talented prospect at four and a very talented prospect at eight, it gives you very intriguing trade-up options that OKC simply did not have last year. They had pick six, 16, and 18. That's great. Even looking into the second round, they had two very high-quality second-rounders. But they couldn't move up on the board because the drop from, let's say, two to six or three to six was just too substantial. Now you can offer teams two top 10 picks in a draft that Some might say is not that great, but I think it's a solid draft. And for some teams, they could realistically see dropping a couple spots. If they need a guard or they need a guy who can score at that two position, the drop from two to four to take on some extra lucrative assets could fit the bill for some front offices. It's unlikely that they go into the top four, but like I said, that is what you want to look for. And what the indicators will be would be if that 12th envelope rolls around and OKC's logo is not on it, they have jumped into the top four 
and they will be smooth sailing into that advertisement break. If you see them at 13 or 14, you know that something crazy has happened in the draft board, and you're not only nervous because your first pick is off, but also OKC's pick just got that more difficult to land in the top four. It just adds a level of chaos that, honestly, you do not want to see if you are a Thunder fan. The bright side of this is LA's chances, or I guess OKC's chances of having the 13th or 14th pick is 6.8%, and there's only a 0.1% chance of being 14. Really, it's going to be between top four, which quite frankly is great for OKC, considering they had to have a lot of things go their way to even have this second lottery choice. The big one is that fourth pick, but you never know. We've seen on multiple occasions, year by year, there's always that one team that jumps up. Scotty Barnes, the rookie of the year, he was picked by the Raptors. They were not projected to be top four last year. A couple seasons ago, John Morant went to the Grizzlies when the Grizzlies were not expected to be in the top four either. So there's always that little glimmer of hope. And for Oklahoma City, they are in a very intriguing spot because they could land basically anywhere on this board. The only spots that are impossible to see a Thunder envelope are picks 9, 10, and 11 because it's out of range for OKC's top pick and it's also out of range for the Clippers pick, which, like I said, either gets in that top four or at best, it's going to land at that number 12 spot. There's a lot of different combinations that come with this. Tyler Carroll was the draft guru last year. He still is this season, and he showed me his simulation tool he used. It's like an Excel sheet with coding all over the place. There's like 10,000 rows a pop on the X and Y axis, and it's just numbers on numbers. There's a simulation button, and it does all the work for you. He's done over 15,000 simulations. And from those results, he had the top three scenarios. The first one sees OKC getting picks 6 and 12. Happens 22.8% of the time. Picks 7 and 12 are 13.3% of the time. And then the third most likely, it's a lot better here. That would be landing at picks 2 and 12 with an 11.4% chance. The best landing for OKC would actually be picks one and two. The one thing I will say though is that is a miracle. There's a 0.16% chance of it happening. And if it makes it sound better, it's more likely OKC gets picks number one and two than OKC falls to pick 14. So keep that in your back pocket going into the lottery drawing tonight. And if you're a Thunder fan, if the Thunder get one top four pick, that's a pretty big success. There's a 51.14% shot, according to Carroll's simulations, that OKC lands at least one top four pick. And from that point, you should have a pretty solid second option, whether it be the Clippers at 12, 13, or 14, or OKC's pick, which would be at 5, 6, 7, or eight. So there's a lot of potential combinations there. Those are the main ones to kind of look out for. 
six, just like last year, is going to be the biggest hump OKC will need to get over. But after that, the chances of landing five are still there. However, it's not going to be as likely. So six and seven are the brutal ones past that point. That's where you get into the potential big time hits. OKC will have Nick Collison representing them. I think it's funny, and it's not really funny even, but whenever the NBA communication sent out the tweet announcing the representatives, Nick Collison was listed as Thunder Legend. And I've seen on Twitter for upwards of a year, people just saying Thunder Legend this guy, Thunder Legend that guy. Ryland Stiles, who does Locked on Thunder, he's the main one I've seen do it, but it's caught on. Um, I've even seen myself doing it at some points, right? But yeah, I think it's cool that that's the words they used. Right now, he's a special assistant to Sam Presti, so he's going to be in Chicago regardless for the Combines. I think that's one of the reasons he was the pick, but you can't really think of a better guy, honestly. Only man with the jersey in the Raptors. Number four, that's his retired number. You're looking for a top four pick. If you are the Oklahoma City Thunder. Moving on though, I want to go more in depth into tonight's drawing. Just breaking down the top three things to monitor in tonight's lotto. Not just for the Thunder, but kind of their peripheral moving forward. And kind of their place uh, you could see in the standings. Now obviously, you want to have the highest pick in this draft class. I could have the top thing being pick one, number two being pick two, and number three being pick three. But I'm kind of giving it the angle of, you know, what does the outlook kind of look like following this draft? I'll get into the high selections because I do think that is the highest priority, of course. But if you're going for other strings to look at and kind of other storylines to monitor outside of OKC, The biggest one to me comes from the Western Conference outlook. And for the Western Conference, they've always been seen as sort of the better conference for years and years. I don't know if it's necessarily changed. I think the perception has though, and there's definitely a a bit of a gap, and it might even be leaning more towards the East now. I think there's arguments on both sides. There used to be times where first rounds seemed like cakewalks out East. In the Western Conference, it was brutal regardless of what your seed was, but the tides have turned a little bit. Anyways, the lottery has the Rockets as the worst team in the league, and then you have the Thunder at pick number four, so they were second out west, and then you get down to some of the other potential players. In all, there are six Western Conference teams involved in tonight's lottery. OKC has the Clippers pick, but there's Houston with the projected number one odds, OKC's at 4, Portland is at 6, Sacramento's at 7, New Orleans is at 8, and at number 9, you have the San Antonio Spurs. So, you have the two heavy hitters in Houston and OKC, but then you just get in that crazy hot streak of Portland, Sacramento, New Orleans, San Antonio. That's four teams in a row where there's a high probability one of them makes a rise into the top four. That's just kind of how that would go, right? But if we're breaking down these teams and you're kind of looking at who you would want to see in the top four, you want to see yourself. You don't want to see any teams out West really, because that's going to make your race more difficult. 
but there's a primary number one enemy, and I think it's kind of unanimous. You don't want the Houston Rockets getting a high pick again. Now, if it wasn't bad enough, you know, they have the number one pick odds, but last year, they could have had their pick going to OKC at five. That would have had a ton of value. Jalen Suggs was on the board. Kuminga was there. Giddy was there. You would have had a pairing of five and six, and you would have been amazing. Even if it's picks five and seven, that was still a great haul for Oklahoma City. Did not work out that way, and they got Jalen Green as a result. Now they have a decent foundation. They have Jalen Green. Kevin Porter Jr. is there if you're keeping him long-term. Sangoon has been an absolute stud. Christian Wood is hanging around. So there are some options for them. And if they are able to get that first pick, take someone like Chet, Jabari, Paulo, that's an immediate game changer. And it's not just a vendetta thing where you don't like the Rockets. It's also that the Rockets actually have a lot of their future going to Oklahoma City. And it comes from that Russell Westbrook trade. The biggest chip was last year. It didn't turn. But in 2024, so not in next year's draft, but the following a top four protected pick will be going to the Thunder. I think if you get a number one pick here tonight, Houston, they might be a fringe lottery team in 2024, but it's not going to be the same situation as we're talking about now. They're not going to be a bottom dweller out West. If they get pick number five, they're still getting a hell of a prospect here, but there's a difference kind of in what you'll you'll find between one, two, three, four and five. So you want to see them drop down. It's not just in 2024. In 2025, OKC has the right to swap their first round pick. It's protected top 10. So it's off limits if Houston falls anywhere one through 10. And then in 2026, there is another top four protected first round pick involved. So this is serious business for the Thunder. You need to be rooting against the Houston Rockets tonight, just like last season, and kind of see what happens with them. After that, I have New Orleans as that second team you don't want to see in the top four. I'll say this though, if New Orleans gets in the top four, OKC gets like pick seven, and they have to reshuffle the deck. New Orleans is one of the teams to root for in next season's playoffs. They already have a base roster of Devontae Graham, McCollum, Brandon Ingram, Zion, and Jonas Valanciunas, if they re-sign him, because he is going to be an unrestricted free agent. On top of it, you have Jose Alvarado, Herb Jones, and Trey Murphy, all three rookies who did stellar with them this year. They're looking to make a run regardless of this draft pick, but... If they're able to climb up top, get a guy like Chet, Jabari, Paulo, Jaden. There's really no glaring hole in this team right now, but if they're able to patch it up with a high ceiling player on a rookie scale contract, they're going to be even more lethal than before. They need to figure out what's going on with Williamson. If he's going to be ready to play next year and he's going to have the same level of production, you have a scary team on your hands and they could have another major piece coming into tonight. I don't think many people have talked about that prospect of New Orleans just yet, but let me tell you, if you do not see their card when they're expected to go at pick number eight, oh my goodness, it is going to be crazy 
in New Orleans. And their roster is going to be special for a good deal of time. Portland might be Public Enemy 3. There's no strings attached. It's just straight up hate. If you're still carrying it over from the playoffs, you don't want Damian Lillard getting that second star yet again. They tank their way to the end of the season, playing guys like CJ Ellaby, 40 plus minutes, Trendon Watford. At times, their 10 day players were getting benched because they were playing too good. And guys like Drew Eubanks were dropping Moses Brown esque numbers. They were tanking big time. I think that's kind of the main group. If someone like the Kings or the Spurs climb the board, good for them. I don't know if there's as much stake you want to put into it, uh, but that's kind of the way I'm assessing things. And just the full assessment here on the lottery odds, Houston's one, Orlando's two, Detroit's three, all with that 14% cut. OKC is four, kind of broke down the numbers there already. And then you go to the Indiana Pacers at pick number five projected. They have a 42.1% chance of being in the top four and a 10.5% chance of being number one. Portland's at six with a 9% chance of the first pick and a 37.2% chance of a top four pick. And Sacramento's at seven, seven and a half at number one and 32% at a top four pick. New Orleans, they have a 6% chance of that number one selection and a 26.3% chance of falling into the top four. San Antonio's at number nine. They have a 4.5% chance with a 20.3% chance of being in the top four. Washington has a 3% shot, 13.9% chance of a top four pick. And at number 11, you have the New York Knicks. They have a three, or excuse me, a 2% chance of number one and a 9.4% chance of that number one selection. OKC's pick via the Clippers, 1.5% chance of number one, 7.1% chance of a top four. Charlotte and Cleveland rounded out. Charlotte has a 1% chance and a 4.8% chance of a top four pick. And Cleveland has a 0.5% chance of going number one and a 2.4% chance of going top four. If they're able to climb that ladder and get a small forward, holy cow. Cleveland is going to be on another level. They've done a great job after picking up Evan Mobley in last draft. And for the OKC Thunder, they're going to want to try to elevate their stock as well and getting a high pick. But... What if that top option isn't there? What if you don't get in the top four? The way I view it, I think if you're number five with one of your picks, you should be good to go. I think there is a pretty clear gap between five and six in this draft class, not necessarily by talent, but by ceiling and by trade value. There is that presumptive top three right now in Chet Holmgren, Paulo Blanchero, and Jabari Smith Jr. You can reorder them however you want. I think any of those three could go number one, and there's not many complaints. It's just based on situational need. And then you get to Jaden Ivey at number four. After that, you get into the waters of talking up guys like Keegan Murray, for example. I don't think Keegan Murray has crazy trade value at number five. 
or hell, let's say he's there at six. If that's your best player available at number six, it's not going to be as alluring of a trade package to someone at one, two, three, or four, at least how I see things. Number five is the last one where you are guaranteed a potential packed prospect, and that would be Shaden Sharp. It doesn't matter how it works. Like I said, if there are five guys on the board that you're interested in and fit this build, if you have the fifth pick, at bare minimum, you have that last man standing to select. For OKC, that very well could be Sharp. If they're at pick number five, based on need, maybe it's not the correct fit, but based on overall talent and potential, you better book it for taking Shade and Sharp. But it's not just based on the go best player available mantra. Same goes with Ivy if he's at five or four. It's because you're guaranteed that high ceiling uh, high ceiling player, but you could use that pick as trade bait of sorts. OKC has that second lottery pick. That pick number five would have to be from Oklahoma City because Los Angeles's pick either is in the top four or at best you're looking at 12. So if you're at five, You can try packaging 5, 12, and maybe some other assets to move up, get to number 3, get a forward, or hell, if you're really sold on picking between Ivy or Sharp, you move up one spot to get your man. I don't think that prospect is there at number 6. If Sharp or Ivy falls to 6, that's great. It still maintains that value, but before going into the war room and making those decisions, I think you're going to kind of have the assumption that the top five would go that direction just based on potential alone. And for a lot of these teams that will be at the top of the board, there will be surprises and there will be teams that might be ready to go, such as the Raptors from last year, but for a team such as, let's say, the Rockets or the Pistons, they have needs in multiple positions and they're still looking to rebuild. Now, I don't know if any of them pick up the phone for OKC necessarily. However, there's always that chance. If they are sold on someone like Jaden Ivey or Shaden Sharp, and they have the second or third pick, they don't like either the two forwards or Chet if he's still available. That's when OKC can unleash that godfather package. There's a reason they've been stockpiling these assets, and they come for times like these. OKC is committed to one of these top three picks and they're right on the outside. You start sending offers to the table and you hope one works. Worst case scenario there, you're still getting a very good piece to move on into the future. On the other side, you could have a confirmed deal and you're able to select your prospect. There was that rumor last year that Evan Mobley would have been Oklahoma City's guy. They wanted to ring up Cleveland and make a deal happen, and it simply could not come to fruition. He was the third pick in the draft. OKC was trying to jump from six to three. You might not think that's like a substantial jump, but it most definitely is. Now that OKC is armed with two lottery picks, it's better than what they had to offer last season. And if they're still in close striking distance and maybe even closer than last year, it's going to make it very interesting in how they maneuver this draft. So as long as you have one top five pick, I think you should be a pretty happy camper for your OKC. If you crack into the top four, that's when you are really in business. 
I think the overall selection also is big. It's obvious. You want to have number one. I think the draft right now is controlled by those three players, though, and Chet, Paulo, and Jabari. Then it's Jaden, then it's Sharp. Reiterating again, but that's just the assumed mock. Players have risen. Scotty Barnes was a big one last year. Jalen Suggs was projected to be top four basically the entire way until the final week. Toronto needed a small forward, and they got their guy in Scotty Barnes. Maybe someone like Keegan Murray could soar up on draft boards. I saw a CBS mock where he was third. I don't think that happens, but let's say, for example, there's a stock riser around. I don't know if it happens, though. I think we've solidified those three spots, and then Jaden should be four. Sharp could go anywhere from five to eight, I believe, Uh, but that's kind of your basic rubric when we're talking this draft class. Oklahoma City has multiple different areas to fill. Let's call it how it is. They have not had a center for the last two seasons. They've thrown in guys like Isaiah Roby and Jeremiah Robinson Earl there, and they have patched it up, but that's not a long-term fit. The people they've had at the center spot, such as Moses Brown and Olivier Saar, were just one-year rentals. It doesn't look like Saar's returning, and Moses Brown was dropped in that trade to Boston. They need to get a center. Clearly, they do. They also need shooting. They've been one of the worst three-point shooting teams since trading everybody two seasons ago. They were dead last in catch-and-shoot rankings, and it's one of the worst percentages we have seen since they started tracking that stat. It's been 10 years of data, and OKC is one of the worst in that category. They need to patch that up. Luckily, the top three basically fit your needs. There's so many, I wouldn't say there's so many, but there definitely are some, and all three of them are able to fit right into that scope. OKC needs that center, Chet Holmgren, he's going to be your center. If you need that sharpshooter, Jabari Smith is one of the best we have seen in a pre-draft process in a good amount of time, and he does it at 6'10", Paulo Banchero, he's a ball handling small forward slash power forward. Very good when it comes to attacking the basket. And if he's able to get a shot developed, he could be the number one guy coming out of this draft class. That is scary. And for a team that already has guys like SGA and Josh Giddy, they will fit in seamlessly with this group. After you get through those top three, it gets a bit murkier. You can go after fit. OKC, they jumped the board to take... Josh Giddy. Some saw it as a reach, and at the time, it pretty much was to take him at number six. If OKC is determined to get their center, and they want Jalen Duran, they could take him at six, let's say again. They could take anybody at pick six for all that we know. However, I think it's better to go best player available right now, and that would be in players such as Ivy and Sharp. The one caveat with that is that both of those players are filling in a role that OKC has already been building up for the last two or three seasons. You look at their backcourt right now, they had problems going into training camp this year. They already had SGA. They took two guards in Giddy and Trey Mann. Dort was playing shooting guard. They had to move him to small forward. And then you go into guys like Teo and Ty Jerome. 
you can't play all those guys meaningful minutes. So Jerome was kind of pushed in and out of the rotation all year. Teo went from minute leader to having to get minutes in the G League to even get an NBA opportunity again. Trey Mann, he didn't pick up minutes consistently until about December. SGA and Giddy, they were fine. But there's a logjam that has already been brewing with young, young players. If you bring on Ivy, he's six foot four, very skilled. Now you got to have some tough decisions because there's SGA, Ivy, Giddy, and Dort. Those are four players that I think are kind of landlocked, at least one through three, and one would have to be moved to the bench. Trey Mann, he popped off this year. What about him? You could say he's the sixth man, but now you're going to have another dude running the show with him, and that's great. I think the depth there would be amazing, but it adds some ripples to the rotation that might be a bit different than someone at the small forward or center spot. I don't know if it stunts the growth necessarily, but it could be a tiny hindrance to begin the regular season. Makes it just more complex, in my opinion. I think all those five are very good players for OKC to gun for, though. Boom or bust potential with some of them. With others, the floor is relatively high and the ceiling is very high. Cannot go wrong kind of just shooting for the stars. That is my draft philosophy going into this. We'll have to see where OKC lands though before kind of putting the strike down and saying this is what they should do. But with any potential package on the board right now, that is the way that I evaluate things. And that's why I think being in that top five is so, so pivotal this season. I want to go into some of these prospects though. On the pod, I haven't done many scouting reports yet. I've been working on them. I actually have a Chet scouting report that's over 3,000 words that I haven't released. As you all know, my site I was running last year, BricktownBeat.com. I sunset it back in November when I joined the Sports Illustrated team. And that's where I used, uh, that's the platform I used to post my draft profiles. Those are very lengthy articles, so I haven't committed to any site yet on those, but just know they're stored somewhere on my Google Drive. Anyways, I have those locked and loaded in the next couple of weeks as we tackle more draft content. Right now, though, I want to talk about some of the big names to watch, and for OKC, kind of the range that they could land one through eight. So I have eight prospects here, projected top 10 that I want to talk to you all about that could be in consideration for the Thunder's own selection. OKC at best gets one, at worst they get number eight. So here are the guys that will be in consideration. Starting things out with Chet Holmgren. 7 feet tall, 195 pounds, with a 7 foot 6 wingspan. He was a monster at Gonzaga this season, shooting 39% from distance, averaging close to 4 blocks per game. He's going to be a machine on that side of the basketball. Even though he's not the biggest player, he's very good when it comes to staying restrained, not picking up those fouls, 
but he's able to be lethal standing still as a shot blocker, but also on the move. He's pretty nimble at seven feet tall, and because of it, that means he's able to stay right under the rim and protect. He's able to contest very well, get you rebounds, and also, when it comes to pick and roll defense, it's hard to find better players in this class than Chet. His agility makes him a really good blend right now. So that means he can eat up floor space like nobody's business. The way he covers ground is very unique. If you're setting a high ball screen, Chet is able to basically do whatever. He can hedge, he can switch. If need be, he will drop, but he's able to pick up on that guard Now, if the guard gets a switch and they pull things back out to the perimeter, that's when things get a bit more interesting with Chet, but let's say they take that initial screen, they switch, and he just darts to the basket. Chet doesn't have necessarily the the foot speed, but in terms of strides, he eats up that hardwood, and it makes him a really good prospect in terms of chase down blocks and just overall being able to defend. When it comes to perimeter defense, he's been able to be a hefty player down there. Now, he's not the most consistent, and I think he'll need to work on it, but in terms of defensive ability, he's already elite below the basket, and he's showing some very promising indicators when it comes to defending the perimeter. Offensively, he was basically the whole package for Gonzaga this season. In terms of finishing, he can do it in multiple different ways. He shot 80 of 100 in the paint this year with the Bulldogs. He was taking shots with a ton of contact, even though he's not 200 pounds. He never plays like it. He's looking to initiate that. He's looking to get the whistle blown, and he's looking to take your head off sometimes off of these drives. He can go on attack mode. Also, he can be very meticulous about it. His footwork is one of his greatest strengths. You'll see a ton of post spins, even in terms of driving he'll go to moving spin moves get into his gather and take a layup on you he's great at getting angles inside and just working you in that regard from three he's also been a scary prospect 39 percent from distance you're not going to find that from very many guys at the five position definitely not someone under this current build though the jump shot is not the quickest but also He is lengthy as it gets. I'd say Poku's jump shot is a very quick release, but in terms of how he launches the ball, it's not very vertical, right? Like he basically pushes it off. It looks like he's pushing it off his chest, second grade basketball. With Chet, that's a vertical release. And even if it's not quick, it is very hard to contest that shot. He gets it off the catch, He's able to get it off of some DHOs, and he was basically shooting it off of a ton of facets with Gonzaga. That's why he's consideration for that number one pick. In terms of his other skills, he's a very good downhill player. He takes it coast to coast, and when he's doing that, defenders have a very hard decision because if they sag off, He's going to shoot from the top of the key. If they play up on him and deny that three-point shot, his length is so much more than his opponent's. So he'll take it inside. 
He'll give you that moving spin move and he'll just try working you off of those shots. He builds up that acceleration at a pretty good rate and he's able to bring you a ton. You look at him and you think, could he be injury prone? That's the one thing just because of his weight. Obviously, the plan is to put weight on him. I don't know how quickly you would want to do it because he's been able to stay pretty healthy, but also his speed has been one of his greatest factors to this point. If you put him in an NBA organization, though, I would trust those doctors to kind of give a good plan in terms of how he needs to build his body up over the next couple of seasons. Moving on, though, we have Jabari Smith Jr. out of Auburn, 6 foot 10, 220 pounds with a 7 foot 1 wingspan. When you look at him, you are looking at a premier sharpshooter. It's a fluid, quick release. He has a great form, and for his size, you're not going to find really anyone in this class with a better jump shot. You don't see him take it off the dribble too often. He has a two dribble pull up though that is deadly. So he's not more of that isolation guy. He kind of needs to be set up in times. He can do it himself. But base level, very talented three point shooter. And he comes with limitless range as well. It's going to be difficult to defend him at the next level due to that jumper and when he gets hot he will be as hot as a pistol I can guarantee you of that for a team like the Thunder they need that catch and shoot help Jabari Smith gives it to you at the position that you need number one but he does it at an elite rate he shot 42% from three with Auburn this year shooting five and a half tries yeah you love to see him work in that area You want to see him also work as a ball handler, as I noted. He's much more of a point A to point B guy. He'll dribble in straight lines, but as soon as you want him to take people off the dribble, go in between the legs, size you up, he's not able to do it that well. And that's part of his game that will need to develop. If it does, though, he is going to be scary. Because when he has the open lane, he is dangerous. He's not going to wow you with like a 45-inch vertical. But... He arguably had the best posterizer dunk of college basketball this season. Rose up, met a man at the rim, continued to soar up, and just cocked it back and jammed it on him. He's able to give you posterizer dunks, and he's able to play above the rim, both in terms of dunks and layups. It just comes down to being able to make those opportunities. If you're put with an elite guard already, it is going to help to kind of open up those cavities in the lane. As of right now, though, that is the one kind of key pointer you have in his game. Defensively, a lot of people love what he has to work with. At 6'10", he has a very good lateral quickness, and he's been able to defend 2s, 3s, and 4s at the collegiate level. For a team like the Thunder, who has been playing kind of just non-positional basketball, This is a type of player you can bring into that system, and he will fit in perfectly. And he's going to fit in perfectly really wherever he lands just because of the blueprint he gives and the way the game has kind of been pushed back to the three-point line so much. Paulo Blanchero, another big name out of Duke. 
six foot ten, two hundred and fifty pounds. He averaged seventeen points and eight rebounds for the Blue Devils this year. And unlike Smith, where most of his possessions kind of came off of an open look or two dribble pull up, he was doing it off the dribble all the time. He's one of the top finishers you'll find in this draft class because of his handle. You would never know he's 6'10 or 250 pounds based on the way he handles it. He handles the basketball like a guard when he's going at you one-on-one, and that is able to lead to some very high-quality looks off of the ISOs, and he's able to find angles off the drives due to that. He's very quick, and when he gets to the basket, he's able to absorb contact. Just like Jabari, he might not be the most vertically gifted player. Like, he'll still rise up and dunk on you. Do not worry about it. It's never really seemed to be that big of an issue, though. And when he attacks, he's able to take you with his left hand or his right hand. With Smith, you've seen a tendency for him to go more for right hand and layups. Hopefully, he works on that as well. Another key point with Paulo, though, is when he drives, he is itching for contact. He wants to get to the foul line. He averaged five free throw attempts this year per game, and he was cashing in on those at a high rate. From three, he shot 33%. That's solid. Is it elite? Not really. Inconsistent at times from downtown. That's where he needs to shore up, but on the case that he does, like I said earlier, that's why he has the case for being a number one pick because you don't have a better ball handling small forward in this draft class. And when it comes to attacking, he's already great. He's shown that he can play at all three levels. And if he's able to permanently unlock that, he is so, so dangerous. And as an add-on, defensively, he helps you out with that size. Jaden Ivey might not help you as much with his frame. He's 6'4", 200 pounds, but oh my god, he is very springy. Averaged 17.9 points, 5 rebounds, and 3 assists for Purdue this year. Might be the most freakish athlete in this draft class. And I'll talk about Shaden Sharp in a second. He clocked an insane vertical leap earlier this month. But Ivy, he can attack like nobody else. He is headhunting when he gets into the lane. And the beauty with him is at the perimeter, his handle is so dominant. He'll kill you with size-up combos, going between the legs, behind the back, hesitations. And if you bite on any of that, he's darting to the rim. He's one of the quickest players in this draft class. The acceleration is really bar none. And when he turns the corner on you, that's when he ticks into that second level where he's leaping at you, he's dunking on you. If he gets caught up midair, he'll make adjustments and he's looking to go up and under midair sometimes in order to cash in on these layups. Crazy force when it comes to playing downhill, when it comes to taking it on ball, when it comes to like shot making. He's also well versed in that category as well. He shot 36% from distance this year, came from a variety of both off the dribble and off the catch shots. If he stays steady there, that's a steal that you could find outside of the top three in this class. To make it all better, he even has that defensive ability where 
He's great at flying for dunks, but he's also great at rejecting some shots. Defensively, there are still some areas he could be a bit better at, but he's able to meet you at the rim, and he will definitely be making some highlights in the near future. Same goes for Shaden Sharp, six foot six, two hundred pounds. Did not play a single minute of collegiate basketball. Went straight from prep school, but he was considered the number one pick or the number one high school recruit if he were to have stayed this year, and that has clearly held a lot of value in these big boards. He's also a crazy athlete. Forty-eight or forty-nine inch vertical, excuse me, is what he had in his drill. That would have smashed the former record held by MJ and Keon Johnson at 48 inches. He's a lob threat, clearly, if he's jumping 49 inches off the ground. He can elevate off of standing dunks, and he's kind of reminiscent of a Jalen Green or a Hamadou Diallo as a finisher because he'll take that initial hit, but he's not going down immediately after it. He'll take the hit, continue to rise up, and convert on some pretty difficult layups and dunks that present themselves so that's what you'll find there the reason that everybody is so attracted to sharp though is not just because of his athletic ability but because of the three level scoring potential he holds i think the jump shot needs some work it's not the quickest it's not the cleanest release it is a one motion jumper and it did the trick playing against high schoolers and prep school kids He has a step back, which creates, which is obviously a plus, but he was very chalky from downtown. He didn't shoot well in his 11 games of prep school this year. In EYBL play, he shot 36% from three, but there were spotty outputs where he'd shoot five of seven one night, and then the next two games, he's shooting a combined two of nine where it's going to look good on paper at that end result, but those are two bad games and one good one that he's out there uh, performing. He'll need to weed that out and be more consistent there, but that brings you the full package and that tells you why he's been mocked in the top five for such a good portion of time. He has some pretty good passing vision when he's looking for it. Sometimes he'll get caught up in tunnel vision, but he does have the passing potential As a ball handler, he has a good size up in addition to a couple between the leg moves, and it's able to help him get inside. It's nowhere uh, on the level of Ivy, I would say. It does help Sharp is two inches taller. It helps him positionally, but it also helps him in being able to kind of force himself inside the lanes, Uh, but that's what you get. You get another very high-octane shooting guard that should be able to play right above the rim. After that, you kind of drop down into the more high floor guys, I guess you could say. At least this is one that I have on my book. And that's why I said the difference between picks five and six could be pretty huge, not just from OKC's checklist, but also a training element. Keegan Murray is who I have right here. With him, he's 6'8", 225, 6'11", wingspan out of Iowa very smart player. It starts out in the post. He has a great turnaround jumper and he has a very good uh, gauge on the lane. Like if there's any opening in terms of a backdoor cut or just cutting through the middle of the paint, 
He's going to do it, and he'll knife inside. It's crazy. It looks like he's playing hole-in-the-wall out of Cartoon Network sometimes just because the way he's able to swim through some of those things. But that's where you'll find him. He's able to make those correct reads to get around the basket and just kind of bully you with his intangibles on the game, such as those turnaround jump shots. Also has a good push shot, which he will bring to the table off of like an entry pass, for example. And he just seems to know where to be most of the time. I think at the NBA ranks, you probably lodge him to the corner of the wing and see if he's able to produce off the catch. After that point, though, you could see him tap around the basket as a roll man off a screen or just knifing inside as that backdoor piece. I think you could try using him in the high ball screen, see if he works in the mid-range and the three. I view him more as like a catch-and-shoot prospect who could tap more inside. Um, And I think he's a great fit for some of these teams. If you're looking to contribute now, I think that Keegan is someone who will plug in right away, give you production, and he'll give you production for a good chunk of time. I'll have to do more evaluating on it, but I think that's where I stand. I don't know if he has that maybe lower ceiling or higher ceiling, I guess, with a low floor. I think he is sort of that middle ground where his floor and his ceiling are relatively the same, and he should be a trusty guy around the league for a good chunk of time. Moving on, though, you get to another player who really fits in one archetype, but people are still high on him based on some of the potential he has shown, and it's A.J. Griffin out of Duke. He averaged 10.4 points, shot 49% from the field this year, but his moneymaker came from downtown. He shot 44.7% from three, and he shot 47% off of the catch. Teams need shooters. They need someone to put in the corner, wing, top of the key, doesn't matter. They need someone to get three points. And if you already have an established backcourt, you can move Griffin to the three, and he'll be able to be that perfect system guy. Trying to think of comparisons, and these are off the top of my head, so don't kill me for it, but maybe like a Cam Johnson almost, where, you know, he does have some interior play. He can get you off the pull-up jumpers, but the main thing you put him out for is to get hot from three, and he can do just that. He has a very good step back as well, and he has some decent handling to him, and that's why people have been praising him so often in this pre-draft process. He doesn't go isolation very much. He can surprise you a bit with that handle, but I think it's more of he's a three-point guy now who has that potential to kind of open up his offense and if he does that he will be a great player uh, for whoever selects him my last guy on the list is Jalen Duran out of Memphis people have seen him as the darling of the Clippers pick if he's somehow available at 12 and OKC has the 12th pick you take Duran and you move on OKC has needed a center badly he's six foot 11 250 pounds and he brings you energy He is the energizer bunny when it comes to below the basket play. Freak athlete, that's the best way to describe him. Dangerous as a lob threat. I think if you're talking a potential rim runner and someone who can set you high ball screens, 
You want Duran doing that because he'll set that screen and immediately slip inside. That can lead to some entry passes or alley-oops, both of which he did a very good job converting on with the Tigers. Pace of play is another big thing with him because he's so athletic and just so nimble. He creates kind of some issues for those opposing defenses and how you want to read those screens and how you want to read maybe an off-ball screen. Centers that might be more flat-footed are going to be very uncomfortable playing defense against Duran. He needs to add a mid-range game in order for it to be even more of a problem. He was not a great shooter this year. He hardly shot from three, was not the greatest in terms of shooting from the free throw line either. If he's able to grow that though, once again, it moves him to a whole nother spectrum. And if he's available at 12, that is a steal you'll find there. He's a person that has climbed up radars though, and it's he's kind of been pinned into like that 7 to 10 range. Dyson Daniels from the G League Ignite team also seems to be in that same exact boat. For Jalen though, I have him as my 8th prospect. Brings you that above the basket play. Also though, defensively, he's a great rim protector. He averaged a tick over 2 blocks per game. And he'll give it to you off of chase downs or just playing straight up with you. Those are my 8 guys to look for though. Oklahoma City is guaranteed to have one of them on the board with their first pick. In terms of the Clippers pick, it could go all the way to 14 for all we know. And that's going to expand the board even further. I will be expanding the board over time as we get a clearer picture of the draft lottery landscape. And we will be finding it out tonight, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time over on ESPN. Get ready. There's going to be plenty of parties, live streams for this event, both for Thunder communities and other communities as well. As for me, like I said, I will be at the down to dunk party, but after that, immediately when I get home, you know I'm going to be giving my reaction to the lottery results. So be prepped for that. Over at SI Thunder, they will be having some live coverage on the draft results and what that could mean. I will have a post up tomorrow with my view of how the drawing went and what that future outlook could look like. Other than that though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. It was a longer one, but as I discussed, this is going to have major implications and it has a lot of different talking points. So, We'll see the results later tonight. As I said, I will have my reaction and I'll have it posted immediately once I'm able to do so. And hopefully you all will give it a listen. If you guys have any preferred prospects or big takeaways leading into draft lottery night, make sure to let me know. You guys can hit me up at my personal Twitter. That's at Ben Kreider or go to the pods Twitter at Thunderstick Pod. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.